You are listening to a Writers at Stanton podcast. Every month, Stanton Library hosts some of the world's most exciting writers and thinkers to discuss their latest books. Thank you for joining us. On behalf of North Sydney Council and the Constant Reader Bookshop, welcome to the Library and the Writers at Stanton program. Before we begin the proceedings, I would like to acknowledge the traditional owners on the lands in which we meet and to pay our respects to the spirits and ancestors of both past and present. My name is Margaret Nicholson and I'm the Program Support Librarian from the Customer Service Team. Today I have the pleasure of introducing Naomi Hart, here to talk about her memoir, Life at the Bottom of the Blender. At the age of 23, Naomi flew from Australia to New York to make it on Broadway as a musical theatre actor. In the process, she accidentally ended up working for the New York Mafia, performed as a dancing plate in the musical Beauty and the Beast, married a chef, opened the famous Hearts Yard restaurant in Sydney, lived on a tropical island in Fiji, and after discovering her daughter had autism and her husband had ADHD, lost all her hair to stress and embraced water polo. Please give a warm welcome to Naomi Hart. Thank you. I too would like to acknowledge that we stand on Kamaragal land. I come to you from Darkenjung land, which means place of sleep. I acknowledge that the land was never ceded and pay my respects to the elders past, present and emerging. Thank you for having me. Sam, one of the apples, uh, one of the publishers at Bad Apple Press, suggested that I hang this talk on the topic of identity as in how the past 20 years has seen me search for and find myself. And I thought, oh, what kind of loser spends 44 years trying to find herself, particularly one who's got absolutely no reason not to have found herself very happily exactly anywhere that she was, given that I'd had a perfect childhood with no childhood trauma and really only dabbled in the tough stuff as an adult. If I had to write a book to find myself, I thought, I can't have been looking very hard to begin with. And then I thought, perhaps she's right. Just like she was onto something when she told me to go back and write about the elephant in the room. You, Naomi, are bald. So I wrote a chapter about my husband's ADHD diagnosis, another about my daughter's autism diagnosis, and yet another about my stress-induced alopecia and contemplating a breakdown that I couldn't seem to find time for in the calendar. Maybe this book was about identity after all. But all that comes much, much later, so let's do as my favourite songstress suggests and start at the very beginning, a very good place to start. I leant against the wall of the terminal, waiting to board Qantas Flight 102, direct to New York City. I was moving to New York to study theatre on a partial scholarship to the American Musical and Dramatic Academy. Did it get any cooler than that? Well, yes, it did, Naomi, if you'd managed to get a full scholarship. While I waited, I tried to stretch surreptitiously. I'd been told I needed to do this to avoid getting deep vein thrombosis. It was just like Stephen Sondheim, that late great master of theatre, had written in Into the Woods. I was excited and scared. Welcome to New York City, the greatest city in the world, the envy of the world, or so we were told by the dean on the first day of theatre school. Boljak said the single thing an actor needs most is courage. Remember... Performing is the X-ray of your soul. The head of the dance department, Harry Wooliver, now dancing a pas de deux with the angels in the sky, had been in the original My Fair Lady on Broadway with Julie Andrews 
and I really didn't need to hear much more than that to staple the stars permanently into my eyes. I told you she was my favourite singer. He used to tell us stories about the cold water flats they all lived in together, which literally had no hot water, and how if they had any money left after they'd all paid for their dance classes, they'd buy some pasta and share it with everyone, then bunk down on a mattress wherever they found one free and share it with one of the girls. Cold showers, pain plaster and communal mattresses. How do I get in on this dream? The class I hadn't anticipated being as incredible as it turned out to be was something called Film Lab. We'd file into a darkened studio and the teacher would play live recordings of some of the greatest performances on Broadway. It was magic. I would sit there with tears running down my face and think, this is it. This is exactly what I want to do. I want to be like Carol Channing and still performing the title role of Hello Dolly at the tender age of 72. As part of class requirements, we had to spend seven hours a week studying the craft. Joyfully, we turned to our playground, pouncing on $5 tickets to see Jeremy Irons in a little night music and standing room spots to watch Antonio Banderas playing opposite Cheetah Rivera in a production of Nine that stands in my mind as one of the greatest pieces of theatre I'd ever seen. I cried when Hugh Jackman sang I Still Call Australia Home in The Boy From Oz, but that could also have been because I got the cheapest seats that were so far up, I was dizzy from the height. New York. You either love her or you don't, and from the second I landed, New York became my mistress. Actually, she's more than a mistress, she's a dominatrix. 24 hours a day, seven days a week, every single day of the year. New York doesn't stop, she doesn't slow down, she doesn't have to. A city of unconquerable energy and its inhabitants, all thirsting for what? They're not always sure. But knowing that if it exists at all, they'll find it there. Ah, clue number one that I might have been looking for myself after all. I wrote this book and I'm only just realising it. So there I am in New York City, a graduate in theatre, eating nothing more than tin tuna and cereal because that's all I could afford, and so desperate to get a job, the anxiety tasted like metal in my mouth. We continue... I knew I was good enough to be on some stage and get paid for it, and I was determined to get there. So I listened to everyone who had ever trained me and did absolutely everything they told me to do. Backstage, the weekly audition paper would come out every Thursday. I'd read through it, highlight the auditions I was right for, and pan my week to hit as many auditions as possible. Auditions were a war of attrition. Odds were, if you could just hang in there long enough, you'd eventually land a gig. You didn't lose a gig because you couldn't do it, but simply because there were so many people to choose from. By the time you removed positions for people with a profile, those who'd done the show before or fitted the costumes, not to mention good old-fashioned nepotism, there weren't many places for the rest of us. Finally, I landed a summer gig, though, playing a bunch of lead roles at a theatre somewhere in the wilds of New Hampshire. I was on my way and about to start living my dream. I knew enough to know that this didn't happen to everyone. It truly was a pinch-yourself kind of moment. The camaraderie of rehearsal, the opening night parties, the harmless hedonism, the applause, the feeling of freedom and success. I had worked so damn hard to achieve those things and it had finally paid off. Not well. I mean, the salary didn't even get me above the poverty line, but I was on my way. I finally felt like I might have found my place in the world where I could contribute and belong. It was me really me, signing into the theatre by 7.30 each night, applying my false eyelashes and pin-curling my hair so a wig would fit neatly on top, putting on my costume, threading my mic up through my G-string and pinning it securely behind my ear. 
I delighted in hearing the stage manager call places and walking onto the darkened stage, taking my opening position, swallowing deeply, checking my throat was open and relaxed, and using the overture to slip into character and the story I was being paid to tell. That feeling, that sense of purpose and individual achievement, I've honestly never felt it, felt it since. Look, reading this now, it seems perfectly obvious that I was trying to find myself over there in the Big Apple, but we've only got four chapters. We're only at chapter four right now, and if we go at this place, pace, it'll be Christmas before we find out what happens. So, suffice to say, I continued my search, thinking I might find myself in Indiana playing a dancing plate in Beauty and the Beast, or in Maine choreographing and being forced to participate in a festival that honoured the plastic lawn flamingo. Perhaps it was when I played Velma in North Conway that I started to work out who I was. Maybe it was when I was living with a bunch of guys back in New York that reminded me of my brothers, listening to them play at East Side bars after I finished work, then coming home and breaking bread, stale bagels that we took from the left-out bakery downstairs, and whiling the hours away while the boys smoked their joints and I supped on my Lindemann's Shiraz, a fine drop if ever I've had one. We lived in Astoria at this time, which meant taking my life in my hands every time I caught the end train on the subway, the carriage ricocheting off the walls of the tunnel as you crossed over into Manhattan. The subway is the limousine of the proletariat, but sometimes it transports so much more than that. One time, a friend of mine used the subway as a hearse. She was dog-sitting for her boss in Greenwich Village, and everything was going swimmingly until one night when she came home and discovered the dog was dead. Terrified, she called the owners, but they didn't seem too distressed and asked her just to take the dog to their vet. How am I going to transport a dead dog around the streets of New York, my friend wondered. She searched the apartment, found a medium-sized suitcase and stuffed the dog inside, pushing her paws into the corners and curling her tail around the special travel lock. She then lugged the suitcase full of dead dog down the stairs and out into the snowy streets of New York. Now, even I might have splurged on a taxi under these circumstances, but she was an actor too and therefore poor and did not have the money for a taxi. So she headed the two blocks to the nearest subway, marking a wide trough in the snow behind her with her cumbersome load. She dragged the case along the snow-slicked street and kathunk, kathunk, kathunked her way down two flights of stairs to the subway platform, thankful the case had not yet popped open under the pressure before hauling the suitcase onto the train. Easy nothing to it. She alighted at her station, then looked up at the three flights of stairs that led to the street, daunted at the prospect of getting her corpse to the top. Excuse me, ma'am, do you need a hand? asked a young man. Oh, that would be awesome, she said gratefully. This bag is really heavy. It looks it, said the good Samaritan. What's in there? Um, computer supplies, answered my friend, saying the first thing she could think of and hoping he didn't get too close to catch the faint whiff of expired canine. Oh, right, like parts of computers, the man asked as they huffed their way up to the first landing. Yeah, I'm moving and this seemed like the best way to transport my computer, says my friend, knowing it was not a good lie but that she had gone too far to back out. They made it to the second landing. Woo! Oh, well, I think I'm done with those ones. I am. Thank you so much for helping me, she said, trying to get off the topic. I really appreciate it. No problem, the man replied. I'm just glad I was around when you needed me. Then he punched her square in the face, causing her to drop her end of the bag and grab her bleeding nose. Meanwhile, he snatched the case, sprinted up the final flight of stairs and out into the streets of New York, never to be seen again. <laughs> Gone. 
and not with a case of dismantled computer pieces like he expected, but rather the decomposing remains of a day-dead Fido. <laughs> we can only wonder what the pawn shop made of that. Back on the hunt again for the next gig, I did what most out-of-work performers do, and after auditioning all day, headed to my nighttime gig in hospitality, which was a lucrative hostessing job at the feeding ground for the creme de la creme of New York City. This was a restaurant owned and run by one of the most powerful and important mafia families in the United States. So important, in fact, that when they took their annual vacation to Cabo San Lucas, they all flew on separate planes so that in the event of a disaster, the dynasty wouldn't be wiped out. Behind the host's desk stood the mama. She ruled her brood of four with an Italian mama's fist. When her two boys moved out to California to frolic in the West Coast sun, she let them be for a few months, then she moved out there to make sure they came home. Boy, did I get stupid, she told me one day in her strident Brooklyn accent. They lived with Playboy bunnies, baby, Playboy bunnies. Big boobs, dumb and blonde. I had no one to talk to. I forgot how to speak. I said, listen, by yourself, you are nothing. With your family, you are strong. She was a woman accustomed to getting her own way, a family trait, I discovered, one day while I stood chatting with a waiter who mentioned he was going to a barber. Careful, says Mama as she walked past, I lost an uncle that way. Her uncle, as it turned out, was the Mad Hatter Albert Anastasia, chief executive of the New York, New York Mafia's enforcement arm, Murder Incorporated, and report, reportedly responsible for over 800 deaths in the 40s and 50s. He was sentenced to the electric chair at Sing Sin Prison, but granted a retrial when four witnesses mysteriously went missing and the other four recanted their statements. This would be the first of five times he would escape the death sentence. However, his luck finally ran out. One day he went for his usual shave and a haircut at the Park Sheraton Hotel. He was sitting in the barber chair, a hot towel draped over his face, so confident in his invincibility he had stopped carrying a weapon or using a bodyguard, when two men in trench coats and fedoras walked in and ushered the startled barber aside. He was shot at point-blank range. The barber didn't breathe a word and no one was ever charged. His niece, the mama, grew up and married a man who ran the Brooklyn docks. Mr Scotto, the mob carbo heavily affiliated with the Gambino family, was, as was his father, a, a former head of the International Longshoremen's Union in Brooklyn. In the 70s, he accepted $250,000 in cash payments from waterfront businessmen and was imprisoned for 39 months. He was given a lighter sentence by the judge after two former mayors and several prominent businessmen and politicians appealed. The police apparently offered him his freedom in return for ratting out his mafia bosses, but he refused, served the time, and the restaurant subsequently enjoyed the loyalty of every Italian-sounding family in the tri-state area. I worked there for years, coming and going in accordance with my theatre gigs, I worked hard, they paid me well, and it remains to this day the most fascinating job I have ever had. One year I returned from a gig and there was a new chef in the kitchen. One night after work he asked me out on a date and I said yes, but really because I didn't know how to say no. And that, friends, is how I met my husband now over 15 years ago. Perhaps I'd found a bit of myself by then, but taking on the role of wife meant I basically had to start all over again. We began our married life by leaving New York City and heading to Santa Monica, where our landlord kept the townhouse next to us free in case the aliens came and needed somewhere to stay. 
Gregory cooked for Bono and Angelina Jolie, and I gave Julia Roberts Panadol, explaining it was Australian for Tylenol, Tylenol, and escorted a discreet Keanu Reeves to his table to celebrate his birthday. But I wasn't going to find myself there. At the time, LA really only allowed for a few different moulds of women, and I didn't quite fit into any of them. Eighteen months later, we packed our bags, sold our car, and when I freaked out on the phone to a friend from high school that I wasn't quite sure why I was coming home anyway, she told me just to do what they'd all done and have a baby. Have a baby? I hadn't thought of that. So, we had our first baby, a girl called Quinn. Then we had a second, our restaurant, Hearts Yard on Enmore Road in Sydney's Inner West. It was a thrilling, exhausting, unexpected and exhilarating time. As the restaurant and Gregory's reputation grew, we appeared in photo shoots, newspaper articles, magazine spreads and TV shows and signed a cookbook deal with a second baby, another girl named Edie, strapped to, our che to my chest and then we decided to open a bar. For at least the first four years of the restaurant, we were racing our round with our asses on fire and our brains constantly short-circuiting. We lived purely on adrenaline, which was good because it was hard to live on $250 a week, which we had allotted ourselves so that we could pay everyone back who had lent us money as quickly as possible. If I had my time again, I'd do that dance so differently, but if we'd done it differently, we wouldn't have danced with the height and passion of that, I am sure. Ignorance, adrenaline, belief in each other and a cannot-afford-to-fail attitude are invaluable if you want to open your own restaurant but it is the sheer stupidity and adoration of parenting that led us to really push the envelope and have a third baby, this time a son named Kit. So I'm not sure I found too much more of myself over those years because I was really rather busy. Throw in Gregory's ADHD diagnosis, which explains so much and actually truly saved our marriage, and our eldest daughter's autism diagnosis. Finally, we had an answer to her troubles, but now we knew it was an answer to a trouble that would never completely go away. You can see my hands were rather full. Team Llewellyn Hart was about to implode. So, just before we did, we sold our restaurants along with our belongings and car and moved to a remote tropical island off the coast of Fiji where Gregory would run the kitchens of a boutique resort. We were looking for an easier time for Quinn and therefore me, an adventure for us all and a chance to save. Poor Fiji, we were asking rather a lot. Luckily, I wasn't, always asking, I wasn't also asking for it to find me too, though I did find a few bits more of myself as I settled into a daily routine that involved a run and a swim after I dropped the girls down to the jetty for their speedboat around to the village school, my three-year-old son climbing coconut trees and planting coral with the Fijian staff, sunsets, glorious singing from the mouths of even more glorious people, time, space and mana, Fijian magic. A few more pieces fell into place. More would have fallen too, of that I have no doubt, if it weren't for COVID shutting down the resort <laughs> and forcing us home so quickly. When we got to the airport, Gregory was still wearing his chef's clogs and Edie wasn't wearing any shoes at all. So there was less finding of myself over those next wretched 18 months because I was more focused on finding housing and employment instead. You know, the basic tenets of modern life. And after a four-month stint on a remote walnut farm, living in a two-room cottage and swapping labour for board, we found them where we now reside in the seaside town of Umina. We felt right at home the minute we moved into our new house on the coast. As Quinn said, it's a higgledy-piggledy house, just like us. 
Umina is a town of mobility scooters, old topless men in denim shorts, locals with easy smiles, beachside cafes that are boot camps at dawn, retirement villages by 10. People who smoke say ta-da and call you darling. And if I were to be decapitated, you could identify my body as the only one on the peninsula that doesn't have a tattoo. Mint green fibro beach shacks with surfboards stacked on enclosed verandas, salty air and the rolling ocean, sometimes flat, often wild, but always beautiful. And me, with my boiled egg head, as my son lovingly declared it, fit right in without anyone giving me a sideways glance. I hadn't actually noticed when I'd first started losing my hair. It wasn't until I was going out one night and I looked in the mirror to apply makeup that I realised I was missing half an eyebrow. That's a shame. Find me anyone who looks good without eyebrows, I thought. Evolutionary scientists might tell you that they're for keeping dirt out of your eyes, but they're not. They're to ensure that human survival continues because no one wants to make babies with a lady with no eyebrows. The next day I went to pull up my hair into its standard top knot and realised there was a small bald patch at the back of my neck. Oh well, I thought, no one looks at the back of your head. Unfortunately, that was just the beginning. And three months later, all that was left of my hair on my head was a few prickly stubbles that my husband dutifully shaved off and they've never returned again. It's lucky you've got wrinkles, Mama, Quinn observed. Otherwise, I wouldn't be able to tell where your face stopped and your head began. I meditate now. Okay, that's not strictly true. I go to a meditation class once a week and I try to meditate. So far, I've made it to three breaths before some thought barges into my brain or even worse, I have a micro-sleep and fall off the back of the chair. The class is held in the upstairs room of the Umina Surf Club with expansive views of the beach. As locations go, it's pretty hard to beat. You can see the Baranjoey Lighthouse on the edge of the distant headland. Out to the left, opposite the mouth of the beach, you can just make out Lobster Beach and Little Box, both located within Budai National Park. So Umina Beach, with its wild vegetation upon approach, and bushland opposite and next to it, has an unaffected, uninhabited feel to it. It's the perfect spot to learn to meditate. The storm cannot disturb the sky, our wise nun tells us. The blue sky is always there underneath it. No matter how bad the storm is around you, you just keep returning to your own clear sky. I'd been living under a storm cloud for long enough, I thought. It was way past time to get the hang of this self-care biz. Martyrdom doesn't look good on anyone and had never been my intent. It truly was a case of too little, almost too late. I don't think I'm alone. I reckon this happens to a lot of us. While we're all busy pursuing education, careers, travel, life partners, the trickier parts of life happen too. A sneaky, often invisible attrition that you don't realise is grinding down your stamina and life force until you've virtually got none left. But if I'm honest, what has really done the damage, the part of me that has been along for this whole wild ride, the reason I got on the ride in the first place, but also the reason I can't get off, is my compulsion to do my utmost at all times under any circumstance. It's not perfectionism so much as heart, you must nail the brief. The brief I haven't yet nailed, and the one that really counts, is helping our autistic daughter interact with the world so that she feels safe, calm, and understood. To have your own babe, the child you created and loved even when she was only a concept, beg you for help and be unable to nail that brief is an agony I suspect will be mine forever. What will save me, I hope, 
is the fact that I am also a natural optimist and unendingly buoyed by the beauties of life. My agony as a mother sits alongside the joy and love I give and receive from those in my orbit. So this book, Life at the Bottom of the Blender, ends with the blades still whirring, but more in a keep the ingredients circulating kind of way and no longer in the slicing and dicing motion that they have been for the previous two years. And because of this book and the chapters that Sam made me go back and write, I now realise and I certainly acknowledge that my determination to meet the brief is really at the core of who I am. And always trying to meet the brief means I have lived fully, deeply, agonisingly, honestly, foolishly and completely. It doesn't mean I get it all right. It doesn't mean it all makes sense. It doesn't mean it's all easy or stress-free and it certainly isn't always fun. It just means that I'm always invested, which means that at some point along the way, there will always be a return. And that, my friends, is a fine way to live indeed. Thank you very much for coming today. <laughs> Hi, we've got a bit of time for questions. Does anyone have a question they'd like to ask Naomi? No? Okay. Well, while you're thinking of one, I can ask some questions. <laughs> so, uh, in your minor, are you working or opening a restaurant or...? No, in, um, what ended up happening was, um, remember the South Pacific bubble that was going to happen? We sort of kept holding on, hoping, hoping that it would and eventually knew we had to get something more secure. And so Gregory now commutes to Fiji, which sounds absurd, but compared to the hours he worked when we ran our own restaurants, uh, actually works better. So I've just done a three-week stint on my own. He is home on Thursday and I intend to not get out of bed Thursday morning for the school palaver in the morning. Uh, at the moment, I'm, I'm doing the book stuff. So next week, I go to Melbourne. Um, a couple of weeks after that, I go to Perth. It's convenient that I have some of my best friends in both those towns. Um, and there's a few more sort of bits and bobs to, to sort out. Um, I'm dabbling in the world of social media, so I do spend time each day trying to raise my profile, um, which is, which is a necessary part of, of being a, an author today. And, you know, we're just, we, the kids and I think probably the last three months we feel that the dust is starting to settle. It's, um, you know, change is obviously, a lot of people struggle, but for an autistic, it's, it's their real nemesis. So um, I've worked, I work pretty hard and spend a lot of time making sure Kiwi can get through the world as easily as she possibly can. And so your career as an author, are you planning more? I am. I have planned more. I have all these drafts on the floor in, in um, manila envelopes that my mother kindly gave me when she retired as a teacher. And I'm desperate to get back and write more. So there were so many more stories. You know, seven years in America is a long time. And, um, you know, I, I, when we lived in LA, I um, volunteered with Red Cross and did Meals on Wheels. And it ended up getting chapter, uh, cut, but that chapter was my favourite because the women that I met were just wild, these women that got no contact with people except me and the other volunteer once a week, and, um, and, uh, and I just, that was my favourite time, you know, and uh, I used to work at a restaurant in New York, and yeah, it got all the, uh, in LA, and it got, you know, all the superstars, but it also had Betty, who, who ran the 
she was the bathroom attendant. You know how Americans do that and they want you to... Anyway, you would give her money. She was one of the last surviving burlesque dancers. She's still alive, 105. And so I used to sneak up this beautiful staircase into the women's change room to see if I could chat with her. So, you know, all those stories that I, I would love to share. And when you were dressed as a plate, like, how big was that outfit? Was it? Yeah, it was big. So, I, I mean, I didn't have much on here. It was, was done as if this part of me was the napkin. <laughs> so I had like a, a, a... Actually, I think there's a photo in the book and it is like a goldy kind of... What's the thing that you put napkins in? The napkin holder? That thing. So that was the middle part, and then the plate was my wing was the wingspan of my arms, so that when we were doing the kick line, which is all the different, you know, saucepans and teacups and whatnot in a row, I could spin it. <laughs> Peak of my career. <laughs> uh, did, has someone thought of any questions they would like to ask? No. Well, I can go on. Um, I. I lived in Newtown as well and we had a Canadian man come to the us and he left the door open at night time and I was just reading about your experience with your front door being left open and what a nightmare, that's the worst. My husband, yes, leaving the door open. Yeah, not ideal, no. I um, didn't know he had ADHD at the time and I just thought he was doing my head in and uh, I couldn't fathom the choices that he would make. You know, he'd say things like, oh, I'm going to be home. I, I want to see the kids. I'll be home at five. And, you know, Quinny, you've got to do things when you say you're going to do them. And so dinner has to be, if you'd said 5.30, it's got to be there at 5.30. And he would walk in at 6.15 and I'd be like, what are you doing? And um, then one night a girlfriend talked to me about how she reckoned her husband had ADHD. And she started telling me, their marriage and then selfishly I started crying and made it all about me and within a week we were in front of a psychiatrist and um, and Gregory was great about it I, I remember sitting on the couch that night waiting for him to come home from the restaurant and he walked in and I was like you've got ADHD and he was like I always knew there was something wrong and that actually broke my heart because I just thought imagine imagine going through your whole life knowing that you're not operating correctly or whatever word we can use, but not knowing why or how to fix it. And um, so he takes, he takes the Dexies and it's made an, a tremendous difference. He has so much more patience for Quinn um, and the other two, but, you know, Quinn, in, Quinn mostly because she can be quite demanding with what she needs from you. But he also, um, the paranoia and the... Uh, the sort of crazy energy has is more controlled. I mean, he's still him. He'll still spend three days making a piece of furniture that we don't need, but he will also remember to pick up the kids. So, um, and we, we, I know now, like, if it's a busy time at work or it's, you know, he's had a big day, I just won't ask him certain things. And if I send a text message saying, can you please get bananas, I wouldn't say, can you please get bananas and... Have you rung mum? Because he would just write back yes. And I'd be like, which part? So, you know, we're still learning, but we are we're so much further along. And, it, yeah, the diagnosis made a massive difference because now I understand the way he operates. Um, I'll, I'll ask one more question. <laughs> um, in New York, you earned maybe $3,000 in one year. Yes. How could you even live on that? 
The mafia paid me cash. <laughs> yes. Yeah. That was taxable dollars, and then the other was correct. <laughs> well, I don't want to end up in the East River, so is that part? Can you take that part out of the podcast? Yes, they did. It was, um, yeah, some weeks I was earning more than Gregory. So, um, yeah, it was quite a tidy job. That's, that was, I mean, this is, you know, I've been home now 12 years. So um, this was pre-GFC and, and the money through that town, I, I just couldn't believe. You know, uh, the restaurant was on the east side and there were heaps of law firms around. And even on a Saturday night, Gregory would have done between five and $10,000 worth of takeaway pasta for the law firms just, and that was before service started. And then people would slip me a couple hundred bucks to get a table, even though I was only the hostess. And I was like, it's the mama that you've got to get through to get the table. And then, you know, you, when I did coat check, you'd earn 800 bucks a night. It was insane. That's absolutely crazy for taking someone's coat. Correct. It up. But it's all to do with ego. And, well, there's no room, so those big furs aren't going to fit, you know. And, and it's, you know, it's like a train station. Like, you have to, to seat people. You had to pull out the table, and then I had the knack down. You'd put your foot on the bottom of it so that nothing skidded. And everyone's as far apart as you are now, except that you're sitting next to diners you don't know. And so everything has to be checked, umbrellas and fur coats and the whole bit. And it was... It was quite a workout because it was a double-storey um, place and they had, like, a long pole with a hook on it and you'd have to hook them up on the top level and then, you'd, you know, people would lose their ticket. and oh. But if men all came up in a group, they'd all want to one-up each other and so then you'd get more tips as the... <laughs> it was just crazy. And there was the coat check lady who had problems with her indigestion or her digestive system? Oh, yeah. Looks full of great characters. Oh, like. she is she rem- she is one of the greatest characters I've ever met. But she used to, she would only she only still only wears um, uh, clothing that you can buy from Sotheby's, like the full antique experience from head to toe. She won't wear an outfit until all the jewellery matches. She's spectacular. Um, Bill Cunningham, who used to take all the fashion photos in New York Times, used to photograph her all the time. And she would ride to work on her bike <laughs> with like a, her costume behind her and her headphones on. She'd be singing to Bruce Springsteen. Wild. But she, she earned, so again, this is 15 years ago, $34,000 in three months. Cash. That's amazing. Anyway, let's um, please thank Naomi for coming and (laughs) thank you. We hope you have enjoyed spending your time with us. Catch up with more of our audio recordings and relive the discussion, insights and laughter of Writers at Stanton. To find out more about our other events and programs, please visit www.northsydney.nsw.gov.au forward slash library. Thank you for listening.